I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. From the Society for Nautical Research, I'm Sam Willis, and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. It's Wednesday, 25th of November. This continues our series of excerpts from the logbook of the whaler Swan of Hull from 1836. She's trapped in the ice in the Davis Straits between Baffin Island and the west coast of Greenland. It's been a relatively interesting week for the crew living most of their time in the freezing darkness. 20th November. Light breezes from the northward with hazy weather. At noon shot a white fox from the ship. Began to burn our spare main to gallant mast. Divine service between decks as usual. Thermometer ten below zero. 25th November. Light winds from the north. At noon the land bore south-southwest distance 60 miles. The men employed in banking the ship's side up with snow for the purpose of making it warmer. 11am a bear came near enough so as to enable the men to get a shot at him but being wounded but slightly, he got away after chasing him for five hours on the ice. The thermometer rose this day to eight above zero, but towards night it fell as much below. Wind from the southward. Measurements taken today in that exact location show that the ice has formed there finally, but it did not come for a full month after the swan was first trapped. The area in question is enormous and the Arctic sea ice keeps the polar regions cool and helps moderate global climate. Hello everyone, today being the 25th of November is the 900th anniversary of the most significant shipwreck in English history, the wreck of the White Ship. It's one of the greatest disasters that England has ever suffered. Its repercussions changed European and English history forever. So today I'm going to get to the bottom of this fascinating story by talking with Earl Spencer, who has just written a book on that very subject. Charles Spencer is the younger brother of Diana, Princess of Wales, and has made a name for himself recently as a historian, with books The Killers of the King, The Men Who Dared to Execute Charles I, and To Catch a King. Charles II's Great Escape. Hi, Charles. Hello, Sam. 
Well, thank you so much for talking to us today. What a story this is. It's magnificent, isn't it? I came across this story um, when I was a younger man writing a book about the Middle Ages, and I couldn't believe that it actually happened, and I couldn't believe how important it was, and yet how few people knew about it. How did you come across the story of the white ship? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm older than you, Sam, and I, I used to... My, my One of my first history books as a child was called Our Island Story, which is a completely non-PC look at how Great Britain was between Boadicea and the death of Queen Victoria. But the whole chapter on Henry I was really about the white ship, and it was gripping, the idea that... Uh, a dynasty could really be wrecked in, in in one accident. And like you, I always assumed everyone knew about it. And then I went to give a talk actually at Leeds Castle for some historians uh, who are international visitors. And and I realised when I bumped into this, talking about it, because I wanted to tell, tell them a bit about um, Empress Matilda, one of the key figures in this story, that really none of them knew anything about it. A couple had heard of it, but none of them really appreciated quite how important it was. And... Uh, that was it, really. I thought, like you, I, I, I'm always surprised by what people do know and what they, and more particularly what they don't know, when you assume they know the same as you. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it is. It is. Um, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing assuming people know the same as you. I, I find it the other way around. Actually, people assume I know a great deal, and I don't. There's nothing in my. <laughs> there's nothing in my head at all. Um, I doubt that. The, no, this this story. So it starts with Henry the First. Um, he's king, and he's had a bit of a struggle becoming king, hasn't he? Yes, well, that you see, Henry the First is one of those names from history of well, the kings that I really do think should be better known to people nowadays. He's just not very fashionable. I hadn't appreciated until I researched this book that he was a son of the conqueror uh, and that he had a really brutally tough time uh, because essentially his father on his deathbed left England to William Rufus and reluctantly left Normandy to the eldest son, Robert Curthose. And Henry got nothing. He got some money, which in those days, you know, if you were part of a royal dynasty, what you really needed was uh, a, a title and land and therefore power. And he was very much at the mercy of his brothers for a long time. And then after that, it became slightly easier for him because he he was an opportunist, really. He seized both his chances, uh, one with the death of William Rufus and the other by conquering uh, Normandy and taking that for himself. So all in all, uh, a, a man not to be trifled with, really. Yeah, and the key thing to know about this story is he'd gone through a great deal to get into this situation. He'd won the throne and he had a son and it was all kind of teed up to be okay. Uh, but this is when, this is when the story comes, comes about. That's so true. You know, I think there's an element, without getting pretentious, there's an element of sort of Greek tragedy about this. A, a man who started not with nothing, but with little uh, in terms of royal power uh, and then I think you're absolutely right. I think he spent the first 20 years of his reign building up a dynasty, but also a legacy. And the legacy is pointed very much in one direction, which is his only legitimate son, uh, William the Eighthling. Now, you know, Henry I, very fertile man. He had 22, perhaps more, perhaps a little less, but probably about 22 illegitimate children, but only one legitimate son. And that was... I suppose, not Henry's mistake, but that was Henry's chance uh, in, in, in terms of forming this dynasty. Yeah. So he's, he's there in northern France and he's preparing to sail, sail back to England. Um, it's, it's quite important why he's in northern France, isn't it? He's just been doing some, some successful conquering of his own. Yes. Henry's great 
adversary through most of his reign was Louis VI of France, a man of magnificent girth known as Louis the Fat. And uh, eventually, after three and a half years of solid campaigning, Henry I has beaten uh, the, the French in battle, in a decisive battle at Bremoule in 1119. And so now the King of France reluctantly has to agree to really what the war was all about, which is recognising Henry's only son, William, as the future Duke of Normandy. So, yes, Henry's coming to Barfleur in Normandy, the great sort of harbour for trips back to Southampton at the time, uh, as a man who's really, in his mind, settled everything. And everything really is, is, is embodied by his son. Yeah, and it's 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 not just him waiting to board these ships to sail back to England. It's Henry, his son, and then there are these. There's, there's a huge crowd of aristocracy. Yes, and do you know what? One of the things I rather love about Henry is that he decided to really found a a parallel bunch of powerful men. Um, they said he raised people from the dust. It's because he, he realised that he could get much more loyalty and a lot less trouble from people who he uh, promoted on their ability and loyalty to him. And a lot of them were on this ship too. It is amazing who was on this one ship. There's the Earl of Chester, the most powerful uh, aristocrat in England. And then a huge bevy of very powerful men and women. Uh, there's 18 women of the rank of Countess and above. And uh, a couple of the royal illegitimate children, the natural children, and nephew and niece, and all sorts of intricately connected members of the Anglo-Norman flower of the aristocracy and of power. Yeah. And so we've got this essentially hugely precious cargo. We know it wasn't a very windy night, but then it, it all goes wrong. It's um, it the, the, in, wrong. The, the inexplicable nature of it is is something that makes it... Um, such a mystery. I love the way that you start the book talking about uh, a distant noise, just a sound. It really makes you think of the soundscape of the past and um, and and how important that was. But it was a you, you describe it as a shrill and short-lived sound, like the distant squawk of a passing gull. And that was the the moment where where everything really had gone very wrong indeed. So what happened between all of these wealthy people being on the uh, the quayside in Barfleur and then tragedy striking? Well, eventually the, the royal party arrive in triumph, including the king, and a man steps forward and he declares himself the son of the captain of William the Conqueror's flagship in 1066 and demands the honour of taking the king back in triumph to England after his victories over the French. But Henry, I, I rather like Henry, he's rather sort of pragmatic and, and not very flatterable. And he says, no, he's going to carry on in, in his normal ship, however wonderful the white ship is. And clearly it was a splendid vessel. Uh, and, and, you know, it probably was white in some form, whether it was, you know, ash lime sort of uh, colour or whatever it was. Now, at that point, Henry decides, I think as a consolation to this crestfallen captain, that he'll let him bring his son, William, and these other incredibly important people, and indeed the royal treasure chest, in the white ship. Henry sets off at his normal pace in the early evening of the 25th of November, 1120, and he leaves his son with a lot of hangers-on. You know, the, the, the son, William, was a 17-year-old, very impressionable, very flattered himself by the crew, and he sets about getting rip-roaringly drunk with his friends. 
And then they think it would be amusing to bring the crew in on this drinking as well. And it's quite clear that pretty much everyone on board was drunk by the time they pushed off a little before midnight that night. And that's when things go very wrong. So we do have an eyewitness of what happens after the, the, the crash into the rock. But what happens, I think, just logically, is that we know for sure that the 50 oarsmen were particularly powerful on the white ship. And they were being urged by the passengers to go as fast as they could because they thought they could overtake the King's vessel before it got to Southampton, even though it had several hours head start. And at the same time, the captain, who I assume was as drunk as everyone else, dropped the sail quite early. And Barflow is a fantastic place to build a ship or even to take to harbour. But the one problem that Barflow has, um, and people may have visited, it's very pretty, uh, fishing village now, but it was the Cherbourg of its day, a busy, busy port. Um, it's got a lot of rocks outside, and particularly one called the Key Berth Rock, which is hidden at high tide. Uh, but it's a monster of a rock, and it that's what uh, took the white ship down. Um, the sail was dropped too soon, the rowers are going too fast, the helmsman wasn't paying attention, and there's this huge splitting sound as one side of the vessel is staved in by the Key Berth Rock. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And you mentioned we have the one um, uh, eyewitness. He's a really interesting character, isn't it? I, th- I think we should, we should say that we've got one eyewitness because everyone else died. That's the yes, scale of this tragedy. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes, uh, the two, there were 250 passengers and 50 crew, and they all die apart from initially two. Um, look, this is a time when people didn't know how to swim. It was not a pastime, and people were terrified of the water. And uh, apart from one or two people who were involved with retrieving nets, you can't find anyone who can swim at this time. So also, it's late November in the Channel. It's freezing and people die of cold water shock as well. But one man, yes, who's the most intriguing figure, as you say, Barreau, a butcher from Rouen, has pursued these wealthy and influential people onto the ship because he's been 
concerned that they're going to disappear across the channel without settling all their debts with him, and he's not going to have that. And do you know, Sam, I, I take the view that the reason he survived is partly because of his humble status, because he's not dressed in the furs and silks of uh, his so-called social superiors. He's, he's clad in the offcuts of his trade, you know, goats, goatskin, sheepskin, tunic. And I, I don't know, I'm not much of a scientist, but I did look into this, that those, those wools, those materials, do have a heat-bearing property if you get out of the water, and he did. He and this man called Delegler, one of the great knights of Henry's army, uh, armor, army, clamber onto a bit of broken mast, and they see everything unfurl around them. Now, poor old Delegler doesn't make it through the night. He slips away with hypothermia and, and drops into the channel, never to be seen again. But somehow, you know, he must have been very tough, Barrow, despite what he was wearing, uh, survives the whole night and is discovered by fishermen in the morning. And he has this extraordinary tale to tell, uh, a, a tale of utter catastrophe. Yeah, and it's it's interesting that it is a tale that seems to have um, had a significant twist in it because it's clear that William at one point does get away, doesn't he? Yes, we know from Barrow's account... And- I don't know if we can assume that's true or whether he was asked to make the prince look a little bit more noble in his death. But the the story that has come down through the generations from Barrow is that William was bundled into the one little rowing boat on the white ship by his bodyguards. And they were heading safely to Barfleur and the coast, which was only a a mile uh, inland. You know, it's a mile from, from the wreck. And at that stage he heard the piercing voice of his half-sister, one of Henry I's illegitimate daughters, Margaret of Pesh. And she's screaming a mixture of, you know, please come and help me, with a, a fair lashing of insult too as to his manhood for leaving her to die there. And he's persuaded uh, William in his safe boat to order his little crew to turn around and go and retrieve her. And of course, you know, this is a... This comes to a a sticky end because a lot of people who are thrashing around in the cold water, uh, drowning, clamber onto this little rowing boat and take it down and the prince goes down with it. So it is possible that the white ship going down could have almost been forgotten to history uh, as long as the prince had survived. But it was his death that made it so terrible and the consequences so huge. Yeah, and the, the the scale of those consequences. So <clears throat> let's just move the focus from from this scene of tragedy on the Kiba of Rock off from Barfleur back to England. So remember, everyone, that the White Ship is following in Henry the King's wake. Henry's landed in Southampton safely. He's chipped off to somewhere in the New Forest, doesn't he, to to merrily yes. wait wait everyone to arrive, but then no one comes. And it's very tough, you know, you think of the courtiers, so they, they learned very quickly about this appalling loss of life. And, you know, the, the chroniclers are very clear, there was almost nobody uh, among the powerful who was still living who hadn't lost either a relative or a close friend in the, uh, in the disaster. And these people decided they couldn't, that nobody wanted to tell Henry I. Now, Henry I had many qualities. Uh, but he was also a very fearsome, hard-nosed man, and people were terrified of telling him, as well as he had the unusual attribute of really loving his children, and uh, this was not necessarily a prerequisite for a monarch at this time. So nobody wanted to tell him, and eventually one of his nephews, 
uh, one of the uh, princes of Blois decided that it had to be broken to him, this terrible news, and he didn't want to do it. So he persuaded a page boy to go in, and this little boy goes in. You can imagine the scene. The king has no idea. He has been asking for a day or so where the others are, uh, and this little boy goes in and blurts out this terrible news. And according to eyewitnesses there, the king bellowed and then fell down in shock. And, you know, there's an awful sort of screaming, and he's then led away to digest this news. Uh, and they say, obviously, with some artistic license, that Henry I never smiled again. Um, but what we do know is that he, he, although he remarried within two months of the White Ship disaster, he was a widower at the time, uh, he, he never had another uh, legitimate male heir. And this was really uh, the, the, the sort of terrible conundrum that he tried to deal with for the remaining 15 years of his life. Yeah, what happens to him? It's a, it's a really interesting study in medieval grief um, as well. He goes through a really interesting sort of almost a period of denial where he sends people off around all the ports, doesn't he, to try and try and find news. Where is my son? And they're, meanwhile, they're finding bodies floating around in France, just trying to identify identify the son, they, and they can't. Um, I thought the, the, actually the identification of the victims was particularly interesting because of the finery of their clothes. It sounds like they yes. weren't dressed dressed to go on a, on a boat across the channel in November. <laughs> they, were, they, they were going to a party. <laughs> I think it was a party atmosphere. And, you know, it's interesting because, of course, you know, we, we have the ways of retrieving bodies in such situations, and they didn't. So the few people who could swim were getting a fortune being uh, employed by wealthy people who had lost a family member to dive along the coast and look for these bodies. So important to the medieval mind, of course, to have a Christian burial. Um, but it was very, very difficult. And a, a, the t it's a tidal area, of course, and bodies were washed a, a, along the coast. Very, very few of them were found. But the ones that were, you're quite right, were identified by their clothing quite often because they'd been in the water so long and uh, their facial features had disappeared. But the, I, I think it is such an extraordinary thing. But I, I think, again, in the 17th century, I, I once wrote a biography of Prince Rupert, and he lost his brother, Prince Morris, in a storm. And he never gave up. You, you, you know, when there is no body, uh, you, you hope that somehow they got swept away. And even if they were sort of captured by pirates or something, you, you, you have the dream that somehow they survived. And it took a little time for the king to accept that there were, apart from Barrow the Butcher, absolutely no survivors whatsoever. Yeah, so we've got this terrible situation where Henry the King's managed to fight his way to power. He's got one legitimate son and all sorts of illegitimate children. Um, and then the son is taken from him in this tragedy. And this is, is it tees it up for how we can go on to explain that this is England's most significant shipwreck, bar none, yes. because of what happens next. Yes. So actually, in itself, the shipwreck wasn't... Of course, it was a catastrophe for, for those who, had, who lost family members or, or, or even colleagues. But there was a possibility of it being reversed if the king could have remarried and had another son in that marriage. But I, look, I don't know why Henry had no more children. He married this uh, girl who was chosen well, yeah, for, for her bloodline, but also her beauty. And she, we know, because after Henry's death, she remarried. She had half a dozen children. She, there was no problem with her. And I wonder if Henry suffered from the grief, whether there was an, uh, 
you know, some form of impotence or something, but something went wrong. And this man who had sired two dozen children, sired no more in the marriage. And I think after, what, half a dozen years of this, he began to realise that he may not be able to have more children. And he started to make plans. And his plans settled on the shoulders of his one other legitimate child, um, the, the lost Prince William's elder sister, Matilda, who was by this stage a widow. She was a widow of the what would become known as the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, the Emperor Heinrich V, Henry V of Germany. And so she was used as the, the, the future hopes for Henry, and, and, and he made her marry one of the uh, sons of the Count of Anjou, uh, Anjou being a great enemy of Normandy, but you know useful for shoring up power. And so she married, really, she, she, she married a Plantagenet, and Henry managed to extract the oaths of all the bishops and barons that they would acknowledge Matilda as his successor when he died. But that wasn't to be the case at all. You know, he died in 1135, famously from the, the cause given by William of Malmesbury was that uh, the king had had a, a surfeit of lampreys that he'd eaten, this rather disgusting-looking water animal, uh, to excess. But however he really did die, he, he, he left this huge conundrum because the succession he had planned was totally ignored. And the one man who, of great consequence, who'd got off the white ship, because that the accounts vary. Either he had stomach trouble or he was uh, laid low by drink. But anyway, oh, this he is the guy. This Ill. is the chap who never, never got on in the first place. He yes, kind of turned an around, of the didn't movie he? Sliding doors here, actually, because Steve. Yeah, he has, like, he has one foot, one foot on the de- on the boat, and then goes <laughs> yeah. off, doesn't he? <laughs> it's a lucky break for him, but it certainly changed history because, as the king's nephew, he he went across as soon as he heard of Henry the First death and seize the throne of England. And actually, one of the things I learned from this, writing this book, is how important it was to be really quick about it. When, when a king died, rush, if you wanted it, rush for the throne as quickly as you could, because, you know, the process of coronation, in a superstitious religious mindset such as existed in the Middle Ages, removed the king into a different sphere, really. I mean, you were no longer somebody who wanted to be uh, uh, crowned, you, you actually had some sort of semi-divine property to you and it was very difficult to get rid of somebody unless you killed them uh, once they had seized the throne. Yeah, but Matilda's faction were not taking this lying down, were they? No, do you know, at first there was sort of stunned uh, disappointment, I think, and they mainly concentrated on getting stuck into Normandy and trying to hold on to the dukedom there. But at the same time, when she came across, three years after Henry I's death, she came across, and by that stage, King Stephen had shown himself to be, look, he was, I, I, all accounts say he was a very charming man, but he was quite a weak king and uh, hadn't got much of a plan, really. And so she was a very popular uh, centre, a focus for resistance to the crown. And also, it had to be fair to Henry I, a lot of people still loved him and wanted to respect his legacy and they eventually, with, with Matilda's arrival in England, found the courage to stand up for her. And this resulted in a really appalling period of uh, civil war, which was known to the Victorians as the Anarchy, where law did completely break down and bloodshed was rife. Uh, there's one monk who talked about bloodshed descending on the land. And it is one of those periods in English history where you really wouldn't have wanted to live, really. 
Yeah, and I suppose that's where the where the story naturally comes to an end, all from this this moment, this 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 moment of maritime tragedy. Um, does it make you want to write more about shipwrecks? <laughs> I love shipwrecks. Do you know there are so many shipwrecks in this story, Sam? And of course, this is your one of your areas of expertise. But when I look at the number of shipwrecks that impacted history at this time, so for instance, uh, Harold, who famously dies at the Battle of Hastings, you know, he he falls into William the Conqueror's hands. Uh, as, a, as a sort of semi-prisoner uh, before uh, Edward the Confessor dies in 1066 and has to swear allegiance or swear to recognise William the Conqueror as the heir to England. And then there's another one where, in fact, the man that Henry the, uh, the woman that Henry I marries, who's Matilda, a, a princess of Scotland, she only ends up being born in Scotland because her mother is shipwrecked on the Scottish coast. And he, William Rufus loses an army on the way up to Scotland uh, at sea. So it was really quite a common thing, and it, it makes you realise how terrifying the sea was to the medieval mind. But yeah, what a great story. And I'm going diving, actually, in three weeks' time, off Barfleur, uh, with a, a very enthusiastic American who's got a team of uh, very brilliant minds from Oxford, and they're convinced that they'll find a part of the white ship. I have explained that it was wooden and it was 900 years ago, but they're pretty <laughs> sure that... Uh, There'll be some rivets or, you know, some nails at least, which will, 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 will date back to that age. So we're going to give it a go anyway. Well, that sounds fascinating. I'm sure there'll be remains of a lot of other ships there. Well, that's um, the other yeah. thing I pointed out. Yeah. Have, have, it's a have, big have rock. They, have they been to the English Channel in November? My goodness me. <laughs> well, they uh, tell me it'll take four and a quarter hours in a speedboat. And I think, good goodness. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, uh, best of luck indeed with that. And thank you very much indeed for talking to us today. Thanks, Sam. Great fun. Thank you. Well, thanks to Charles for that. I very much enjoyed that discussion. And to bring the medieval maritime world to life, I've been inspired to dig out a description of Southampton made by Wace. He was a chronicler, a Norman poet, writing in the mid-12th century. There the ships were gathered and the troops assembled. You would have seen many ships being prepared, ships moored, ships anchored, ships beached and ships launched, ships being pegged and nailed together, cordage spread out, masts raised, gangplanks put over the side and ships loaded, helmets, shields, hauberks carried, lances raised, horses led, knights and servants boarding, and one friend calling out to another, they exchange many greetings, those who are staying behind and those departing. When all had gone aboard the ships and they had the tide in a fair wind, then you would have seen anchors raised, cables hauled, shrouds tied down, sailors clambering around on board, unfurling canvas and sails. Some strain at the windlass, others with the sail pin and tacking spar. Aft are the helmsmen, the best of the master steersmen. Each one is attentive to his navigation at the rudder that steers the ship. Tiller forward if running to port, tiller back to starboard. In order to gather the wind into the sails, they brace the leech spars to the fore and fix them solidly into the leeches. There are some who pull the buntlins and lower the yard slightly, so that the ship may run more smoothly. They check the wind and the stars and trim their sails according to the breeze. They lash the brails to the mast so that the wind does escape past it. They run under two reefs or three. Very bold, 
Very gallant was he who first built a ship and set sail downwind, seeking a country he didn't see and a shore he didn't know. Well, I hope you've enjoyed our episode. Now, how can you help? Well, do please share news of this podcast with your friends. But the best thing you can do, of course, is to join the Society for Nautical Research who produce this podcast. You can find out how at snr.org.uk and you will get access to over a century of the most wonderful scholarship in maritime history, as well as other perks of membership, not least the annual dinner on board HMS Victory. Do follow the Society on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, at Nautical History. And the podcast itself has its own Instagram page, at Mariner's Mirror Pod. Thanks for listening, guys. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.